This episode of the Australia in the World podcast is produced with the support of the Australian Institute of International Affairs, an independent, non-profit organisation promoting interest in and understanding of international affairs in Australia by providing a forum for discussion and debate. The views expressed in this podcast are those of the speakers themselves and not the institutional views of the AWIA. Hello and welcome to the Australia in the World podcast. I am Darren Lim from the School of Politics and International Relations at the Australian National University and with me is Alan Gingell, National President of the Australian Institute of International Affairs. Hello, Alan. Hi there, Darren. On today's episode, the first two topics relate to nuclear weapons. First, there is North Korea in the aftermath of the second summit between Donald Trump and Kim Jong-un and then we'll revisit the recent tensions between India and Pakistan in Kashmir. Both topics will give us a chance, I think, to chat about the broader influence of nuclear weapons on international affairs. And then finally, we'll discuss the long-awaited free trade agreement between Indonesia and Australia that was signed in the past week. So let's get to it. So first, before we turn to the specific events of the last few weeks, Alan, I wanted to just ask you a, a terribly broad and possibly unhelpful question, at least from a practitioner's perspective, about nuclear weapons generally, given your decades of experience working in foreign policy. And the, the, the context for this question is a debate in international relations academic literature about whether nuclear weapons are a stabilising force in international affairs. One argument goes that if both sides in a potential military conflict know that the other side has a guaranteed ability to retaliate with nuclear weapons, what we would call the secure second strike capability, then that first side will be reluctant to take too many risks in a crisis scenario for fear of what might happen if things get too heated. And this, of course, is the well-known theory of mutually assured destruction. The opposing argument, however, says that it's precisely because both sides know that they could blow each other to smithereens, that neither would ever take that fateful step of being the first to use nuclear weapons, no matter how much the other side was escalating in a conventional conflict. The consequence is that one or maybe both sides feels less inhibited in threatening and actually fighting a conventional war, even if that means inflicting a lot of pain and damage and misery. And this has been called the stability-instability paradox. You have stability at the nuclear level where both sides feel they can never use nuclear weapons and know it and know the other side feels the same way. That caps how far they can go in a conflict. But that also then creates instability at the subnuclear or the conventional level where both sides or at least one side feels free to fight a conventional conflict and even manipulate escalation threats. So that's the broad contours of the academic debate, Alan, and I don't want you to adjudicate that. I'm rather just hoping for you to offer a real-world perspective or real-world experience on this. In your observation over your career, have nuclear weapons been a stabilising force? And is this even a relevant question to be asking? Look, I, I know the argument, and there may be an element of truth in the first, that is the mutually assured destruction theory in the case of India and Pakistan, 
which we'll come to later, because certainly the potential for nuclear conflict has limited conventional war in that case, possibly. But I, I have to say I'm a sceptic about the idea of nuclear weapons uh, essentially as a stabilising force. Some commentators to the uh, Cold War and the fact that we got through that without massive conflict. But as the Duke of Wellington probably didn't say about the Battle of Waterloo, it was a damn close run thing. Uh, you remember last week I was talking about uh, Ben McIntyre's book, The Spy and the Traitor, uh, which is about the British KGB spy, Oleg Gordievsky. And that was a reminder of how close we came in 1983 in the NATO Able Archer uh, exercise to real nuclear con conflict. And it was only Gordievsky's um, ability to interpret Soviet moves to Western leaders at the time that uh, that may have saved us. On the general question of nuclear weapons, I'm an abolitionist, although I think that the um, process is long and difficult. And for that reason, I don't support the nuclear ban treaty, which is a sort of normative declaration that they should be illegal. But that doesn't mean that we shouldn't be doing all we can to limit the catastrophic dangers. So I'm afraid I, I just can't see nuclear weapons as a stabilising force. There's an article uh, that I teach in some of my classes that was written by Kenneth Waltz, uh, who, you know, possibly one of the most famous realists or neo-realists in international relations scholarship. And he wrote this very provocative article in sort of about 2011, 2012, I think it was in Foreign Affairs, with the provocative title, Why Iran Should Get the Bomb. And he was arguing yeah. that you know, instability mm. in the Middle East is caused because of, there is an asymmetry where Israel has a nuclear capability, undeclared, but everyone knows that it's there. And that makes everybody else, but specifically their sort of arch enemies, Iran, feel very nervous. And that the best thing we could do is to make Iran feel secure, because if Iran felt secure, then that would stabilise the overall region. And the best way to make Iran feel secure is for them to acquire nuclear weapons. And, you know, it was a provocative argument. It got a lot of people talking. It's great for teaching purposes because you can think through the logic. But I'm, I'm assuming I can guess how you would react to that kind of argument, particularly being made by an academic who hasn't uh, spent much time in the policy world. You'd have to say that Donald Trump is probably causing the Iranians to revisit Waltz at the, mo <laughs> at the moment. Yes. Okay, well, let's get to the specific cases then, and let's begin with North Korea. Now, when our podcast launched in late July last year, it had already been, I think, maybe seven weeks since the first summit between President Donald Trump and North Korean leader Kim Jong-un uh, in Singapore. And given, you know, in this Trump world that we live in, a single news cycle of 24 hours feels like an eternity, I don't actually think we ever discussed these events back then. So let's quickly rewind and remind our listeners of where we've come from. Barack Obama, when he was leaving office, apparently told Trump that North Korea would be his biggest foreign policy challenge as president. And in Trump's first year in office in 2017, things looked very grim. North Korea was testing missiles and detonating increasingly powerful nuclear weapons. The US imposed new sanctions. And of course, we'll all remember Trump making his famous Twitter interventions, the fire and fury threat um, calling Kim Little Rocket Man. These are all in August and September 2017. And then in January 2018, touting his bigger and more powerful nuclear button. Now, I was considering traveling to South Korea uh, in 2017 for fieldwork, and I actually delayed my trip in part because I was just a bit nervous 
in September of that year about the possibility that open conflict could break out. Then, in early 2018, for reasons that no one quite understood, Trump agreed to have a historic summit in Singapore of June of 2018, at which some kind of agreement was signed, um, where the two sides made some vague promises, but didn't really commit to a specific timeline. Nevertheless, in the aftermath of the Singapore summit, Trump declared that North Korea was no longer a nuclear threat. And this is despite the fact that Pyongyang had not agreed to any substantive and verifiable restraints on their nuclear program. Meanwhile, Trump surprised South Korean officials by expressing a wish to suspend or scale back military exercises between the United States and South Korea because they were expensive and he said, provocative. In the months that followed, more and more evidence emerged suggesting that North Korea was doing the exact opposite of denuclearization, while the US elected to keep its sanctions in place for one more year. Efforts at getting the talks back on track at the lower level failed. But meanwhile, South Korea, sort of in the most difficult position of all, one would think, continued with its own diplomacy holding multiple leader summits between President Moon Jae-in of South Korea and Kim Jong-un. In September of 2018, however, there was another reversal of the Trump position where Trump declared that he and Kim had fallen in love or that they fell in love after exchanging great letters. And from that point, both sides began to orient themselves towards a second summit, even as reports were coming out that North Korea was proceeding with its ballistic missile program and had many undeclared bases in its territory. Ahead of the summit in early February of this year, a confidential UN report leaked stating that North Korea had maintained its nuclear and ballistic missiles program and was looking to ensure that these could withstand military strikes, including by using civilian facilities to protect them. And this was echoed a few weeks later by the commander of US forces in South Korea, saying that he had seen, quote, little to no verifiable change, end quote, in North Korea's military capabilities. The summit, of course, then happened at the end of February, a few weeks ago in Hanoi, Vietnam, just after we recorded our last podcast. And in the lead up, there were expectations and hopes that some kind of concrete plan would be agreed upon between both sides, where the North Koreans would agree to some form of denuclearization and the US would agree to wind back the sanctions that have been crippling North Korea's economy. So that's the you know the potted history of the issue for our listeners. With all that background, Alan, I'm wondering where we should begin. I guess, what were your ex- expectations in the lead up to the summit a few weeks ago? And what does it mean that Trump abruptly cut the summit short to walk away, as he put it, apparently facing a North Korean demand to remove sanctions that he wasn't prepared to agree to? Uh, Well, I guess hope springs eternal. And so my hopes were great, but my expectations, I must say, were always pretty limited, partly because we had mixed messages uh, coming out of the U.S., system, and you alluded to some of those, and no messages at all from the uh, DPRK. Trump's decision to walk away really underlined one of the broader problems with his presidency, which is 
a tendency to see the complex world through the lens of a New York property developer. Mm. So he was sort of following practice that he was used to, but unlike a commercial negotiation in New York, the person on the other side of the table wasn't likely to come back and raise the price and not and do the deal. Yeah, we have, I guess, an uncertain landscape ahead of us, but to the extent that we can evaluate the last two plus years of Washington's diplomacy, you know, under the Trump administration. What do you see of the strengths, if any, and the weaknesses of this approach? You know, are we in a better or a worse position than we we were in January 2017 when Obama left office and Trump took over? I mean, should we just be grateful that we've avoided any kind of war? When you ask for an assessment of Washington's diplomacy, do you mean just on North Korea? I mean on North Korea, more, yes. More no, no, no. We'd yeah, be here yeah, for a yeah. long time if it was everything. <laughs> more, more broadly, uh, you know, I think it's been disastrous. But on North Korea, look, I, I was perfectly prepared to accept that nothing we've done before has worked and that, uh, and that reaching out at the leadership level, um, making surprising offers was worth having a go. But it did need to be backed up by the most solid and intensive staff work, which meant that when the leaders finally got together, a deal was clean, uh, not necessarily done, but clearly visible uh, from both sides. And that doesn't seem to have been the case in Singapore and doesn't seem to have the case here. So are we in a better or worse position than January 2017, um, you know, maybe you could you could make a case that simply uh, talking and talking even without success has changed the dynamics of the uh, relationship, which might give Kim reason to, you know, pause for making moves because he, he will now think that he understands something more of the mind of Donald Trump. So it, it hasn't been a success, but if you'd ask whether I would rather what we have now or what it looked like then, probably what we have now. When you describe, you know, an improved process where lower level officials, you know, do the intense negotiation and come up with not a final agreement, but certainly, you know, puts you within spitting distance of a final agreement that you can that you can agree upon um, between the leaders that does sound more like the orthodox diplomacy that you would have expected from previous administrations and so i'm you know just playing devil's advocate here you know, do you think you know a president hillary clinton could have done any better and i guess the simple question is was a nuclear armed north korea an inevitability here you know was there nothing that any administration could have done to prevent us from getting to this point? Uh, there was clearly nothing that any administration did that prevented us from getting to this point. And I think it's very, it's very arguable case that, uh, that nothing would have prevented it, given the nature of the regime in North Korea, given the particular interests which they had in regime survival. So, yeah, so I, th I think that's right. Uh, would Hillary Clinton have been better? I don't, I don't think so. I don't think we would have got, got any further uh, progress, but I don't accept that you can't have this sort of face-to-face -face unpredictable theatre at the top, which mm -hmm. I think has been quite interesting, without also, I don't think that you need to say that that can only happen if you don't have the good staff work uh, leading up to it. And of course, the corollary of this 
unpredictable pageantry or theatre at the top was the fact that the young you know, Chairman Kim was able to secure two leaders' summits with the President of the United States. And everyone agrees that this conferred upon him a significant degree of international legitimacy, you know, that he can sort of hobnob with, with you know, the leader of the free world in, in theory. And he is, of course, the leader of one of the most dictatorial and repressive regimes in the world, if not the most. Do you see this notional conferral of legitimacy as a problem? I mean, given nothing has really changed, should we bemoan, you know, the fact that these summits occurred without concrete outcomes? Or was it worth giving them a go and just simply wearing the price of legitimacy for Kim? Well, I don't I don't have any problem with the president uh, dealing with Kim. I mean, diplomacy often has to be conducted with truly awful people. I mean, that's the point of uh, of diplomacy in some cases. Uh, I do have a problem with the particular Trumpist form of showering praise on him, and I found that very hard to take, even, even when he was in his antagonistic phase, the use of Twitter uh, labels like Little Rocket Man, si- simply, simply uh, you know, trivialised the seriousness of the problem and the unpleasantness of the adversary and um, turned it into social media fodder. So there's a sort of a celebrity dimension that this uh, generated for, uh, for Kim. And I do think that does help to shield people from the odious nature of the regime. It actually just occurred to me then, thinking about one of the multitude of stories that was in the North American news cycle over the past week was this storm in a teacup about Donald Trump mispronouncing uh, Tim Cook, who's the CEO of Apple's name, that he apparently didn't say his surname. And so rather than saying Tim Cook of Apple, he said Tim Apple. And this was a nothing, you know, a nothing burger, as they say. But then Trump overreacted and tried to tweet out, I think, two different corrections of the record and complaining yet again about fake news. And it was just so inconsequential that everyone else couldn't work out why he was taking it so personally. And so hearing you talk then, I'm sort of coming to the conclusion that this, the way that Trump conducted these summits with these, what seemed to us to be empty um, threats initially, or at least, you know, ridiculous um, attacks, but then saying, you know, he's a great guy, a lot of potential, you know, the kinds of um, platitudes that he was then sending Kim's way as things were improving are exactly the kind of thing that he would have wanted to receive um, and why, you know, countries like Saudi Arabia have been so successful in courting him because they he takes these things very seriously. Um, yeah, and and yeah. so he was really just trying to give Kim what he thought he wanted, which is what Donald Trump would have wanted, um, which I'm is... sure he's right. Yeah, yeah, quite remarkable. You know, in, in, <laughs> there's an element of he's really acting in good faith here, even if, even if the rest of us sort of roll our eyes and, and shudder. In any event, we, we're in a, a situation now where we don't know what's going to happen next. We know that Trump has some very hawkish advisors around him, no, notably National Security Advisor John Bolton. And, you know, Kim hasn't, you know, I mean, I guess he's bought himself time to secure his nuclear capability, but he hasn't seen any dramatic rollback of the sanctions. So I'm just wondering what happens next. You know, I mean, how do you feel about the situation? Now, what's your expectations about what could happen in the next few months and what should we be looking for to sort of as, as a portent for for what might be ahead oh i don't know <laughs> <laughs> but the uh, i mean one of the interesting things is that the 
language that Trump used at the end of it suggested that he was trying to keep the door open. So it hasn't been slammed shut, although the North Koreans seemed uh, less interested in resuming uh, talks uh, themselves. But I think it'll be a, a long, slow process now. I don't, I don't think Trump could afford or Kim would want another summit of, you know, like Singapore or, uh, or Hanoi. So long period now, don't know what will happen. There are still incentives for, um, uh, for the North to do a deal, but don't hold your breath, I think, until, you know, probably through the US elections now. Okay, well, turning finally then to the Australian perspective on all this, how would you define our specific interests? And to what extent, if any, are they different from those of the United States? And to your knowledge, you know, how have we been involved, if at all, in the North Korea diplomacy over the you know the past few decades? Well, the answer to the last part is uh, is peripherally. We've you know we've we've done our done our best to support um, moves to uh, bring the the uh, North back into the tent. I, I'm not you know, on, on what it means for Australia. I'm, I'm not convinced by all those maps you see that show North Korean missiles raining down on uh, Darwin, mm. I think, with the limited arsenal which they uh, have, uh, we wouldn't be a first uh, point of call. But we certainly share with the United States a deep interest in getting nuclear weapons and ballistic missiles out of the hands of the North Koreans. But we also share with the Japanese an interest in this being done in a way that continues to provide assurances to US allies in the region that any deal won't come at the expense of US allies. And the slipperiness and unpredictability of US diplomacy continues to cause anxiety in both uh, Tokyo and Seoul. And you, you you know, you referred earlier to the sort of throwaway lines about the costs of, um, of military uh, exercises on the peninsula. And uh, so it's not just the issue of the North Korean nuclear arsenal. It's also the impact that this is having on US allies, which are important, uh, other US allies, which are important to Australia in the region. And I think you've just answered then what was going to be my final question, which is what you know, big lessons do you think the Australian government and maybe the Australian people should take away from this? And let me restate what you just said and see if I got it right, which is that there might not have been much that the United States and the West could have done to prevent North Korea from getting to this point. And so putting aside all, all of the pageantry, one of the major... Um, you know, sort of negative outcomes has been the impact, the peripheral impact or the tangential impact of Trump's diplomacy on reassurance for other allies in the region and undermining the confidence in the United States in, in amongst us. Is that maybe the, one of the major takeaways, or is there anything else that you would point to as a as a takeaway from this whole saga? Yeah, no, that no, that that I think is uh, is what it is. Going back to the Iran uh, nuclear deal, yes. it, it's again a reason why I think that U.S. efforts to undo it are so misjudged because one of the things the Iranians must be learning from this is that the US president, the current US president can fall in love with you if you've got uh, nuclear weapons, but uh, not if you if you don't. So I, I think that that's, uh, that's an important uh, issue to bear in mind. Okay, well, next on our agenda is a return to India-Pakistan. Now, we just caught the beginning of this 
this crisis or these tensions in our last episode after a suicide bombing in the Indian-controlled part of the disputed Kashmir territory killed over 40 Indian paramilitary personnel. Now, since that uh, time, since our last episode, a lot has happened. India responded with airstrikes into Pakistan's territory, claiming that it had struck uh, training camps of the terrorist militant group Jaish e Mohammed at Balakot, uh, killing hundreds, at least allegedly. The Pakistanis responded and an air skirmish ensued with at least one Indian fighter jet being shot down and the pilot being captured because he landed in Pakistani territory. However, with the crisis then threatening to escalate further amid artillery barges across the line of control from both sides, suddenly things looked to improve. The Pakistanis claimed that the Indians had missed with all of their bombing and had just bombed a bunch of trees with zero meaningful impact and that their own um, airstrikes uh, were only meant to even the score. They also subsequently returned the pilot um, with Prime Minister Imran Khan making multiple statements about how Pakistan had no desire to escalate a conflict given the risk of miscalculation between the two nuclear powers. And that, as far as I can read it, is where we still stand today a few weeks later. So I want to frame our discussion with three quick dynamics uh, that I think the audience needs to, to understand. First, from the Indian side, we have Prime Minister Modi of the Hindu Nationalist BJP Party facing a national election just a few months' time uh, and clearly was facing intense political pressure, including thousands taking to the streets in protest and a hyperactive and hyper-nationalist crowd on social media and cable TV to respond with force against this terrorist threat that has not gone away. On the Pakistan side, you know, we have the government and the military with a murky connection to groups like Jaish-e Mohammed. You know, the international community has insisted for a long time that the government must do more to clamp down on terrorist activity within Pakistan's borders and has placed significant pressure on the Pakistani government to do so, to force this change. However, it's not quite so simple for the Pakistani government because it faces its own you know, internal politics. You, know, you have hardline Islamist elements within the government, within the military and within broader society um, who have an interest in supporting or have aligned interests with these groups. And you, you have the fact that with a conventionally weaker military, some of the activity of these groups is not necessarily wholly inconsistent with some of Islamabad's broader strategic objectives. So the point here is that the Pakistan government and military have incentives not to bow completely to international pressure to eliminate these groups entirely. So then the third dynamic for the rest of us, what we see, of course, is two nuclear-armed states entering into a potential uh, escalation spiral, a crisis, in which each show of force could be met with a respectively larger and larger response until one day the conflict goes nuclear. And that, of course, is terrifying. And we are left wondering what the international community can do um, and what needs to happen to de-escalate conflicts like this. So, Alan, I thought I would ask you first, you know, when assessing a crisis situation like this, you know, what, what kind of diplomacy is typically happening? You know, what contribution is the international community making um, and I'm interested if you could discuss the logic of, of, of off, off ramps here. You know, this phrase off ramp has been thrown around a lot in analysis that I've read. Could you talk us through what their logic is and how they potentially help? When societies like this, um, both of them where nationalist sentiments are running high, uh, get, in, get involved in a, in a conflict, 
then the government's concerned are under two sets of pressures, one domestic and one uh, international. Because the sort of hyper-nationalist elements in both countries um, want uh, action, see this as a... uh, as an affront to uh, to national dignity, you've got to find uh, ways in which honour can be declared mm. uh, sat- satisfied. But at the same time, and we saw it in in this case, international pressure from um, other powerful states like the United States, uh, China, I suspect, although we've seen no evidence of that, are saying, cool it, guys, uh, this could uh, this could go badly wrong. And of course, neither of the governments want it to go badly wrong because neither can be completely certain what the outcome of uh, a conflict would be. One of the things that was quite an aspect that was quite interesting to me came out of a piece I read by Christine Fair in The Atlantic, I believe, and I'll post a link in the show notes. And in this article, what she does is she lays out the facts um, that we know for sure occurred, but then she listed a number of claims made by both sides in the heat of this conflict or this sort of escalating crisis, which could not be verified. And so then she continues, and I'm going to quote her at length here because I think it's very interesting. Neither India nor Pakistan has been forthcoming with evidence to back up its key claims. And Pakistan, predictably, has made it very difficult for for anyone to independently assess the damage at Balakot. Pakistan has also an incentive to cover up its use of American-made F-16s to attack India, as doing so would likely violate the end-use agreements of their purchase. The internet, meanwhile, has been flooded with vintage photos of the Balakot site that variously confirm the preferred accounts of both sides. Some social media users have been have even posted images from a popular video game, insisting that they prove India's claims. In India, the ruling party and its followers discredit any citizens asking for evidence as anti-nationals while denouncing foreigners who question the official narrative as Pakistani apologists. And so what Christine Fair goes on to reason is that, you know, the kind of honour-preserving outcomes that you describe, Alan, as being necessary were able to be sort of achieved here because um, Delhi was able to claim that it retaliated with strength against these terrorists. Pakistan was able to claim that India's retaliation was minimal and didn't really require a very strong response. Um, and and that Pakistan was skillful enough to to shoot down this this plane and capture the pilot, but also be magnanimous enough in returning him. And so, to quote Fair again, deception provided an important way for both India and Pakistan to step back from crisis. Now, in this era of of you know of fake news and and that sort of accusation and the information space being flooded with all sorts of information from unverifiable sources. It occurs to me that you know, this probably isn't the first time uh, in history that, that act, major actors have relied upon or maybe even manufactured themselves fictions to get them through a crisis. Um, although I do wonder, you know, in this age of social media and hyper-connectivity, whether it's going to become harder and harder to keep secrets, even um, you know, secrets that can bring you know, countries back from the brink of war. And that makes me wonder whether or not these kinds of face-saving exercises will remain available. And Fair argues in her in article that 
you know, while the two sides may have stepped back from conflict this time, the kinds of expectations that these potential fictions created amongst the domestic publics of both countries will make it even harder for them to back down in the future. And so we might just be setting ourselves up for, you know, an even bigger showdown in the future. But it's, it's, for me, it's just a fascinating interaction here of, you know, traditional S crises, but with this sort of in this information, you know, 21st century information economy um, where narratives can be, can fly back and forth with no verification and people can find the information um, that they maybe that, that, that protects or that preserves their, their existing worldviews. And that could actually be a positive thing. So very confusing. I don't, Alan, I don't know if you have any particular comment on that. You suggested that it might be become harder mm. to uh, preserve such narratives in an in an era like this with uh, sort of omnipresent communications. But you also, at the same time, are giving a very good example of how the communications environment we've got now actually makes this easier. Yeah. I mean, if you can post <laughs> video game <laughs> video game clips and, and people will believe that that's what, what's been going on, then it, it's it's easier than the days when uh, intrepid journalists would journey to the site of all these uh, things and report back uh, to their broadsheet newspapers. Yeah, that's interesting. It, it makes me think again of Trump and and you know he's the the number of documented untruths that he has told um, with fact checkers. You know, it's, I think it's in the thousands now of things that you can verifiably prove um, as being false. Yet he maintains this you know strong base of support. Um, because people identify, you know, with him and with the Republican Party and, you know, facts be damned in a sense. And I wonder then if that, that kind of dynamic which we see as being so hostile to democracy and to, you know, effective government, yeah, as you say, might be if there is the political will for leaders to back down, that they will be able to spin <laughs> whatever narrative they want uh, in order to placate their supporters. But, of course, the opposite is also true, that if they want to escalate, they can make up whatever they like as well. So, you know, it's we don't want to celebrate <laughs> fake news too much. But, yeah, I, yeah, you're right. I contradicted myself, and I guess that shows how, um, how complex these dynamics are. Anyway, let's finish off with uh, an Australian perspective. Um, and it was reported during the standoff, I think in the Sydney Morning Herald, that Pakistan's army chief had spoken with top military officials from Australia, the UK and the United States. So, Alan, you know, what role do we here in Australia play um, or might we have been playing you know, in this in this crisis? What might the, the general have been talking about um, with his Australian counterparts? And, you know, I guess this is a follow-on question from the same uh, question in the North Korea case. You know, are we bystanders here or do we make a meaningful contribution? Is this what, you know, I think it was a watching brief for the foreign minister where we're just observing, or is this something the prime minister could turn his mind to and, and potentially get involved in in a meaningful way? Well, I, I think interestingly, the answer to that is uh, is neither of those things. The Australian relationship with Pakistan has been uh, interesting in, in recent years, um, maybe, you know, particularly since the uh, Australian involvement in Afghanistan in the uh, in the 21st uh, century. Other Western countries like the US and the UK have had pretty tumultuous uh, time of it. But through that period, Australian military relations, especially training, uh, have continued and have given us the opportunity to, to establish links 
with the overwhelmingly dominant institution in uh, in Pakistan, which is the uh, army. Now, this this goes back a long way. Um, we sent our first um, army officer for training to Ketter Command and Staff College in 1907, I gather, uh, and there are uh, regular exchanges of officers in in both directions and regular discussions at the highest levels of the ADF. So I assume that part of the telephone conversation the um, Pakistanis were referring to was an effort by Australia to join others in uh, trying to calm the situation. So, so look, uh, it's an interesting example, um, not of a watching brief for the foreign minister or something the PM would turn his mind to, but uh, diplomacy using the resources of the ADF rather than the civilian uh, leadership. I don't, I don't think either the PM or the foreign minister would have had as much impact in this case as CDF. And these are resources that are in the form of personal relationships and, 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 and connections that have been built up, as you say, over many years. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay. Exactly. And and have been continually tended or continuously tended during that period. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. I mean, I, I suppose that, uh, I don't know if you have a comment on this, you know, that strikes me as being a very fertile area for Australia to, you know, beef up its its diplomatic resources. If you can build these kinds of relationships um you know, at the military level or at the bureaucratic level, then when crisis hit, you know, you have someone with whom that you have a personal connection and can make phone calls just to check in and, and see, you know, have a chat about what's going on. I don't, I don't know if that kind of thing happens, but it strikes me as... Yeah, no, look, and, and it's it, it's certainly not unique uh, in the case of, um, of Pakistan. I mean, with Indonesia, uh, for example, we knew, we, we learned uh, during the Timor crisis... Uh, and the Timor independence um, uh, struggle, uh, how important the uh, personal links between uh, ADF officers mm. um, and the and their Indonesian uh, counterparts were. So this has happened. This has happened in in a number of uh, different areas of Australian foreign policy. Yeah, and that's, what's interesting to me is that this is not a function of our size or our material resources or the, the strength of our military it, it, you know we can potentially you know offer something really substantial substantive even if we otherwise would be a peripheral player as we are in the north korean case we yeah. don't have many yeah, exchanges exactly. with the north koreans but we might no, have more yeah that that's that's a that's an interesting perspective okay well speaking of indonesia uh our final topic for the day uh, is the recent free trade agreement that was finally signed between Australia and Indonesia in the past week. Now, for the Indonesians, uh, some of the major benefits on offer include more work opportunities for its citizens uh, and a boost for its palm oil industry. For Australia, the benefits will flow to our agricultural and education industries. Now, this is a deal that took eight years to negotiate and won't be ratified until after both countries have elections in April for Indonesia and in May for Australia of this year. Now, I believe that if it is ratified, it will be our 10th bilateral agreement, um, in addition to the TPP um, and the ASEAN-Australia-New Zealand agreement. So, Alan, I guess, you know, what took us so long? Um, and, you know, I wonder if in answering you can reflect on the broader history of bilateral relations with Indonesia. 
a listener to the podcast pointed out to me that there is a report from the 1990s, uh, we think from the Parliamentary Library, that notes that given how close the two countries are and given our, re our respective economic size, we should trade with Indonesia much more than we do. But they today are Australia's 13th largest trading partners, not even in the top 10. Now, you mentioned on a previous podcast that we periodically rediscover the South Pacific. Is this a case of us periodically rediscovering Indonesia too, or is the dynamic and the narrative a different one here? Well, there's certainly been periods of more and less uh, Australian focus on Indonesia. Um, uh, Keating in the early 1990s and Howard after the Indian Ocean tsunami were recent high points. Unlike the South Pacific, I think uh, Indonesia is not forgotten about in the interim. It's just that it's a very difficult relationship uh, to manage. Uh, you know, you're right that the idea that this is a big market waiting to be discovered is not is not new. In in June 1994, as it happens, I, when I was working in Keating's office, I went with him uh, to Indonesia with 200, uh, where 200 Australian companies were participating in a trade fair. And that was when Keating sort of formulated the line that no country was more important to Australia than, uh, than Indonesia. So we've been talking about this for a, for a long time. Things have changed, though, at that, at that time as well, whenever uh, an Australian official encountered a visiting American or European, you'd, you'd pull out um, uh, you know, a set of talking points which uh, said, and look, you may not realise this, but um, the Australian economy is larger than that of all the ASEAN countries combined. And now, now of course, in purchasing power terms, uh, the Indonesian economy alone is double Australia's. So I don't, I don't think anyone has really doubted the potential. It's just that it's, you know, bloody hard work for Australian companies and they mostly prefer easier pastures. So one of the good things about this agreement, uh, which they're calling um, IACPA, which is a really lousy branding job, is that in addition to being uh, a signal, both um, governments are serious about the um, economic relationship, it may, provided it's ratified, and you know we've got to emphasise that it's still got to go through both uh, both parliaments and maybe in Australia a, a new government, if it's ratified, it should help to establish a more secure framework for investment and, uh, and business. So I've hung around economists at the ANU long enough to believe that preferential trade agreements like this are a decidedly second best option compared with multilateral deals. But this is uh, nevertheless a useful step forward. And uh, from what I'm gathering, what you're saying, it's that you know, you're trying to make the inhospitable or the uh, un unknown a bit more hospitable and known for Australian companies. So it's maybe it's less yeah. about the yeah. reduction in barriers and it's more about just introducing Australian companies to the market and, and, and giving them that familiarity, which is could be far more consequential. Yeah, and, and assurances of predictability mm. are the really important thing mm. in, the, uh, in the economic relationship. Okay. Yeah, well, I, uh, I did know, I think I saw a report saying that the vice presidential candidate of the um, opposition in Indonesia had expressed some scepticism about the, about the agreement. And, and so if... if uh, if they win, if the opposition wins, maybe there could be some, you know, some dark 
clouds on the horizon for this one too. On that note, let's uh, move on to our final segment, reading, listening and watching. Alan, what are you reading, listening or watching at the moment? Well, it sometimes feels in Canberra at the moment that it's all China all the time. And the reasons for that are obvious. But in in the um, continuing search for sensible, informed uh, commentary, I recommend a recent podcast uh, from the Carnegie Endowment's um, excellent series, Diplopod. I don't know if you've um, I know uh, well, yes. uh, come, come across that. But um, Evan Feigenbaum, who's just become vice president for studies at Carnegie, um, did one called Where is the US-China Relationship? Uh, going. Um, Feigenbaum has long experience in China and Asia, particularly in the uh, in the State Department. And I thought that given how directly Australian interests are affected by US policy towards uh, China, this was, a, this was a really useful, informed account of how things have got to this point and where they are heading. And that's um, sobering uh, for Australian uh, listeners to think about. Great. Well, I'll put a link to that episode in the show notes. We have reversed roles this week because you're recommending a podcast and I'm recommending a book. Um, the book I've uh, halfway through is by George Magnus and it's called Red Flags, Why She's China is in Jeopardy. So we're staying on the China theme, but Magnus is, uh, he's an economist. I think he spent his most of his career in, in investment banking, actually. Uh, and he's quite an active presence on Twitter. I think he's quite a good follow, actually. And he focuses his book on economic problems and, and, and identifies four major challenges facing China's future growth prospects, debt, currency, the middle income trap and demographics. And yeah, you know, my sense is that this is fairly objective analysis. He's not trying to make you know, a values-based argument and he's trying to be constructive by offering solutions. Um, although, of course, the politics of implementing these solutions is far from straightforward for the CCP. So I think if you're looking for a good diagnosis of the economic challenges facing China, which, of course, will have political consequences and consequences for international affairs uh, in how they play out, it's, it's a, good, a good read. Okay, well, that's all for this episode of Australia in the World. Um, note that we are expecting to uh, release a special live recorded episode um, from an event that's being held at the ANU this week, and hopefully that will come out next week. Uh, and of course, you know, it's my expectation, Alan, and, and you may shudder at the, at the prospect of this, but our next recording will happen after the, the 1st of April. Um, and so I expect that we'll be, it'll be all Brexit for the entire episode. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> um, because, yeah. of course, we have the, the deadline is looming and we still have no idea what's going to happen. And we haven't really discussed it very much. So I'm looking forward to, to digging in and hearing your thoughts on on. on, on all things Brexit and, and our connection you know, to our Commonwealth overlords. Um, so look, I'm looking forward to that one. In any event, we'll see how we go. Um, as always, we want to thank uh, our AIIA intern, Charlie Henshaw, for help with both research and audio editing and Rory Stenning for composing our theme music. Talk to you again soon. <laughs>